Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, I will be speaking with Mark Michelson, MD, MSCE, about the article, Why ICU Clinicians Need to Care About PICS, published in Critical Connections. Dr. Michelson works as an assistant professor of medicine at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is the co-chair of the society's new Thrive Initiative, which aims to improve patient and family support after critical illness. Dr. Michelson also serves as chair-elect of the internal medicine section at SCCM and will co-chair the 2018 Congress Program Committee, along with Kent Blatt and Gloria Rodriguez-Vera. I would like to welcome Dr. Michelson and thank him for joining us and also give an opportunity to maybe give us a brief overview of the milieu uh, through which uh, you came up with these thoughts about PICS and your ideas about how to carry it forwards. First, uh, thank you, Dr. Lin, uh, for the opportunity to speak about this important subject. So first, along with uh, my co-authors, including Carol Thompson, co-chair of the Thrive Initiative, and Jack Iwashina. The general framework that we sort of thought through in sort of addressing a fundamental question, which is why in general should our community care about this, we thought in several ways that it could be best addressed. And first, it's by taking a look back and recognizing why this is a fundamental question in critical care in 2015. And then we sort of tackle the question of what do we know right now about what survivors experience that sort of set the stage for why it's so essential to meet the needs of the survivors of critical illness and what they're experiencing out there. And so I think when we look back, we can look back to an initial article by one of the pioneers who's fortunate to have on the task force, Mona Hopkins. And... She asked the question, along with some researchers at the University of Utah, that said, what is life like in general after ARDS from a neuropsychological perspective? And I'll just summarize the details very quickly. And what they found was that survivors of ARDS had a strikingly high rate of cognitive impairment and mental health issues after critical illness. And mind you, this was nearly 16 years ago. And I think in many ways, what, what many people thought at that time is, could this possibly be for real? And what can we do to identify or confirm that this is the case? And in general, what's occurred over the last decade plus is these critically important questions about what life is like for survivors have been asked and they have been answered, and it's brought us to this precipice where we have a great deal of information about the long-term consequences and the challenges that survivors experience. And when we talk about survivors, we're also talking about their community, their family members, and what the impact is like for them. And it's from this perspective that we, we focused this piece But it's also because it's what the most natural approach is when we think about why this is a relevant and timely topic. And it really comes down to the facts. And here, 
the facts are that there are millions of patients who experience critical illness every year, and we recognize that many of these patients will experience impairments that last quite a while, if not continue to last in their neuropsychological function and their physical function. And from that perspective, it really begs the question, and it's the reason why the time is now for, well, what do we do about this? And, and that's in general what the, what the framework was for the piece. And, and in general, the way we think the critical care community thinks about this important issue right now. I think it's fascinating. The data I've been familiar with for quite a while now, because this has been one of my interests as well, how patients do from a uh, cognitive and psychiatric standpoint. And yes, the percentages are stunning that approximately 30% of patients have cognitive or psychiatric issues. I do think that most psychiatrists and most intensivists are as of now, not quite used to working with each other in terms of planning for a critical illness survivor's rehabilitation from that neuropsychiatric standpoint. Obviously, you having these thoughts on your forefront must have had some ways of building some initial bridges with your psychiatry or neurology colleagues about this issue. Maybe you could share that with us. It's a great question. So I think that when you build bridges, you start one step at a time. And from the perspective of what does the survivor need, we realize that they have a number of needs that span multiple domains from head to toe. And to get started on that sort of journey of recovery, one of the keys is going to be to provide the survivor with access to the experts that can address what their greatest challenges are. And so fundamentally or operationally, it begins by taking stock of what an individual patient is experiencing. And I think that that's an important first step, which is building a system through partnering with providers within our health system who are comfortable with the concept of post-intensive care syndrome and comfortable with asking the questions of what is life like right now for you. And if that's someone that's recently left the intensive care unit, if they're on the floor, the questions could be as simple as, can you tell me how you are doing from a thinking perspective? How's your mood? And how are you physically doing today? And we start to get a sense for what the patient is prioritizing and what their issues are. And that same sort of framework can work more distally as well. When the patient makes their way out of the hospital, ends up back to a primary care physician, one of the strategies or one of the needs is going to be how can we effectively share the information that's becoming more relevant, more known within the critical care community to providers who don't encounter critically ill patients as frequently as we do. And I think that encouraging providers more distally to ask these questions because they're important to our patients and encouraging our patients to share what their experience is, is one way to begin to build these bridges that are going to be so necessary. And at the heart of those goals are simply the desire to build a system, to create a system that acknowledges that this is important to our patients. And therefore, it's important for us as a health system, 
for example, to provide the support, to provide the access to achieve this through consultation to the experts that these patients frequently need. Yes, I can see how that would work. I think there would have to be a lot of re-education of various members of you know the overall healthcare team in order to get this new concept across. But I think it's a very exciting venture, and it you know for me personally, it totally makes sense. Do you have a approximate timeline of how you would like the Thrive Project to work? Uh, sure. So let me maybe take the opportunity to introduce what the concept of Thrive. So in Phoenix at Congress, Thrive was launched as a new initiative uh, by the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And it was after several years, actually, of stewardship and leadership from uh, leadership within the society, including Todd Dorman and Craig Coopersmith, amongst many, many others, that really said, how can we as a society embrace and accelerate the knowledge in this area to sort of meet the needs of survivors? And at the heart of Thrive is the general idea that recovery, a meaningful recovery, which is really what patients are striving for, along with their families, can be most effectively accomplished through an effective partnership with one's healthcare providers and with one's community. And, and that in general is the, the guiding principle of the concept, which is life after critical illness is fundamentally important to our patients and to give the voice to survivors by partnering with them to learn what they're experiencing first by listening to what they're experiencing and then developing novel solutions and digging into the idea of stimulating innovative research to improve recovery for critical illness. And in general, those are the the pillars that are guiding the Thrive initiative. And from a timeline perspective, it's similar to the bridge concept, which is that there are so many things about longitudinal recovery that can be challenging, that can be barriers to, say, effective implementation. But at the beginning, it's simply going to start with a commitment to design strategies that effectively support patients. And through the process, we learn from them. And that's in general why one of the initial focuses is on building a collaborative of in-person support networks through institutions who applied for seed grants. And through the process, we aim over a gradual incremental expansion of this collaborative to foster a supportive environment, learn from these communities, and learn how other healthcare systems, other hospitals can in time sort of focus their efforts to better support the survivor community. And then in general, one of the objectives that requires further planning is in general, how do you how do you listen and learn from survivors? How do you connect? And in some ways that's as other groups have begun to dig into across the world, there's a need for virtual support. And that's also something that we're beginning as a, an initiative, the Thrive Initiative, to begin to explore. 
And I should just highlight that the individuals who have volunteered to be a part of this initiative or appointed to it are some of the thought leaders in this field, some of the pioneers in this field. And it's the beginning of a conversation within the society that says, how can we learn from what we are doing collectively to close this gap? And, and so in general, the time frame is taking it one step at a time and learning along the way how can we best support and then testing different strategies to identify what works. And what works is going to be a story told by what the survivors share through these experiences with us. That sounds great. And I'm so glad that we can use the forum of the podcast to further publicize this. Um, I think maybe we should actually take a step back at this point and review PICS for our listeners and uh, sort of refresh everybody on the concept. So maybe I could get you, uh, Dr. Michelson, to de define PICS for us and to talk about the important point of the upcoming Critical Connections article and to also perhaps tell me, for one, any data that you do have about the successful intervention for patients with PICS and how they can potentially recover? Great question. It's a fundamental question. So first, what is post-intensive care syndrome? Well, it was a, a term coined just several years ago um, by an SCCM long-term outcomes task force where the general question was, there's an understanding that life after critical illness is challenging, and when you compile the data, it funnels into impairments that span multiple domains. And the definition of post-intensive care syndrome that came forth from the research that has been done in this area over the last 15 years is impairment in neuropsychological, meaning cognition or mental health, as well as physical function, that occurs after critical illness and endures. And there are several elements of that definition that are really important to dig into. And it's an idea that these are functions that are critically important. They impact health-related quality of life in terms of our ability to interact with friends and family, to be physically active, to have the social roles that we have. And so it has sort of face validity in terms of what patients and their family members are aiming to achieve, which is a balanced life of function in these domains. And so the elucidation or the clarity in understanding how common impairment is in these domains sort of sets the stage for why this is such an important question in our community now. And I think one of the things that's important to highlight is that in many ways, the discovery, if you will, of these impairments is a product of the success of critical care medicine. For many, many years, the focus as it rightly should have been and continues to be is reducing the burden of mortality to critical illness. For disease states like ARDS and septic shock, traditionally, mortality rates exceeded 50%. And with advances in care over the last decade or more, the vast majority of these survivors of even things like septic shock and ARDS are actually surviving. And so when we recognize this, then the goal remains to improve short-term uh, outcomes like mortality. But now it sort of stretches out to think about how can we actually not just 
accomplish that, but how do we actually provide care that provides an opportunity to have long-term health as well? And one of the latter questions that you had is sort of what do we know right now is helpful in mitigating long-term neuropsychological and functional impairment? And I think it's best captured in the uh, ABCDEF bundle, and it also highlights the important work that's coming forth through the ICU Liberation Initiative led by Wes Ely and others that really aims to take the evidence base for how to shorten duration of mechanical ventilation, focus on the important delirium assessments in the intensive care unit, how can we minimize sedation and collectively provide care that both seeks to improve short-term outcomes as well as long-term outcomes. And at this stage, that encapsulates much of what we know right now appears to be useful to improve long-term outcomes. Sounds good. Well, one of the parts of your article and the Thrive Initiative is to bring the care of the the individual patient more to the care of the patient and their family. So I think that is something that I would like to get you to comment on more, is what are the concrete ways to establish family-centered and patient-driven recovery planning? Are there particular things that you could suggest that uh, we as clinicians start doing or that we as institutions start programming? That's another great question. I think in many ways this actually question plays to the strengths of our community. And it's a community that has embraced the general idea of patient-centered and family-centered care. And it starts by engaging patients and families in rounds. And it's this general idea of prioritizing partnership between the providers, the patients, and their family members. And it begins when we are focused on providing care that gives the patient in front of us the best chance of a good short-term outcome. But it really sets the stage for the types of discussions and effective communication that's going to make it possible to begin to sort of tackle the long-term issues. And what I mean by that is that as someone approaches the time when they'll be able to be discharged from the intensive care unit, that trust, that effective communication that begins from day one by engaging the family in the care that we're providing permits us also to begin to ask and tackle the tough questions about, so what does recovery look like moving forward? And I think in many ways this is a dialogue that acknowledges that there are challenges ahead that share explicitly with patients that many patients do experience, especially right after the ICU, but many still have these right after hospital discharge. And that education That preparation is a concrete example of what we can do when, even at present right now, while we have knowledge about ICU care, 
that we believe has the ability to mitigate long-term impairment. The evidence at present needs to be built for what we can do after discharge. And so that doesn't mean that there's nothing that we can do. In fact, there is an awful lot that we can do, and it begins by sharing our knowledge about these concepts with the patients that are going to be experiencing it to prepare them for what they should expect moving forward and so that they can actually begin to recover and recovery in some ways in these instances begins by understanding what they've been through and that the impairments that many of them experience, uh, that they're not alone in experiencing those. So I would say that for now, that's an effective way, a concrete way for us in our everyday practice to begin to practice in a strategy and in a way that both acknowledges the fundamental importance of a short-term horizon, but also begins to have us thinking as a community about the long-term horizon for our patients. Yeah, as you're talking about this, it makes me think about extremely specific ways to do this. I guess I'm thinking about the efforts on the SCCM's part and, you know, medical educators overall, really, to really protocolize a lot of healthcare processes. So are there things that we can build into our daily practice and the clinical flow for any particular patient uh, in terms of the, the topic that we're discussing? So, for example, do, do we establish certain family meetings or do we have the expectation of certain family meetings to discuss these topics? Do we set particular time points along a patient's hospitalization process to do that? Do we have a particular team, a multidisciplinary team of various providers to do something like that? Do we try to put together patient support groups? Do you have any experience with any of that, or do you have thoughts about those things? They are great points, and I have thoughts about all of them. I will try to sort of drill down on a couple of the points. I think one of the challenges is how do we actually effectively partner over the continuum of care? And one of the things that you highlighted was protocols and checklists. And I think that's in general, that's a great example of why what we've learned from critical care can and may be applied here with extreme success. Meaning that when we ask what's important to survivors, and the reality is this is in many ways untapped space. To my knowledge, there's one study, and it was in ARDS survivors specifically. It was conducted by the Margaret uh, Herridge Group in Toronto that basically said, what did ARDS survivors experience? And it's, it's a beautifully done study, and it's rarely referenced, and yet it tells us that what survivors need is education. They need preparation. And ultimately, they need support that endures beyond hospital discharge. And I think that it highlights that there's a great deal that we don't know, but that there is probably, I anticipate, a great deal that is already occurring as we speak and that will occur. And it highlights why we need to examine and test the different strategies that are going to be rolled out and then share with one another for what we find in general may work. And then it gets to a new question, which is individual patients can be very different 
in terms of socioeconomic status, cultural differences. And I think we are very cognizant that approaches that may work in general may not work in certain instances. And over time, I think that that's one of the incredibly important questions, which is when we ask and listen for what patients need and then eventually begin to understand what we can provide that meets their needs, we also need to explore that each of us is different and that each of us has different needs. And that also needs to be to be factored in to the approach that is provided at the individual level. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. And that also addresses my question that I was going to ask you about how socioeconomic, educational, and multicultural considerations would affect the way that we approach this family-centered and patient-driven recovery strategy. The next question I would like to ask you is a lot of this type of thinking, you know, thinking about the patient's long-term recovery process, thinking about their eventual cognitive dysfunction and how to treat that, don't necessarily align with, for example, the short-term goals that a particular healthcare facility has However, it makes more sense overall, for example, for our society, if nothing else, in terms of improving people's quality of life, in terms of returning them to the society as fully functioning individuals, their productivity, etc. So I guess this is a long-winded way of asking you, these strategies, which might invoke more startup costs, for example, mm. will these first take hold in healthcare systems where the healthcare payers and the healthcare providers are closely aligned versus another one where the providers are more you know fractured between the short-term care and the long-term care so will these things first be embraced by for example public healthcare systems or something like the Kaiser healthcare system out here on the west coast which are making financial decisions and investments based on long-term care results? I think that healthcare systems that are investing in integration and the longitudinal or cycle of care, if you will, um, which is a general idea that says that if you ask a patient what they really are interested in, they aren't going to respond that they are so focused on how many days they spent in an intensive care unit versus how many days in, on a floor. In general, what they're focused on is, I got hospitalized, am I going to get readmitted? And if I do get readmitted, what is life like after that? And I think that that is a situation where the movement in healthcare actually aligns with what patients seek and desire. And that's a very, very good thing. And as that evolves, I think that the opportunity for us to really listen and understand that if what we're hearing is so clear that the focus is, what's my life like afterwards, then I do think that there will be healthcare systems that innovate in this space sooner than others. That's just natural. And then one of the imperatives is going to be what do they find works? Because at some point we begin to do, and then we need to explore and identify what works. 
And I think that there's going to be a lot of doing. And then in this sphere, there needs to be an investment as well in identifying what works. And so I don't know where across our country we're going to find that the doing gets started, but we're very much looking forward to encouraging those type of efforts, supporting them, and ultimately learning from them, because that is exactly what, when we listen, what our patients are asking for. It certainly is very inspiring. It, it does sound like there will need to be a lot of work done, a lot of advocacy for, for this. I personally feel like you've made a very convincing argument as to why we do need to think about this long-term arc for these patients and that we need to carefully nurture this. As a way to start summarizing our conversation, perhaps I can also ask you to, you know, Tommy and our listeners, our fellow clinicians, what should we be doing right now? What advice do you have for us to uh, look for ways to improve care for our patients right now and how to help the Thrive Project launch? Those are awesome questions as well. So I think at an individual provider level, I think that we can begin by asking our patients, what are you experiencing? When I have conversations about this exact issue, one of the things that's fascinating is that I think it's really hard for survivors as they come out of critical illness to be in a position where they can ask the questions. And so in some ways, maybe we should ask ourselves, if I found myself in this situation with all the knowledge that I have, what would I want to know? And, and that's an excellent starting point that says, well, then let's work together as a community of physicians, nurses, and colleagues within the intensive care unit to begin to set the stage for sharing the information that I would want to know as I got better from my critical illness. And in that process, I think we're going to learn an awful lot more about what our individual patients are experiencing that will then invigorate us in our efforts to build initiatives that provide resources or potentially effective programs to improve their long-term lives. And so at this stage, while the big picture is so big, it can also start at a very small scale that simply says that we care about this and for the patient who's before us, how do we get started on making it better for you? Well, Dr. Michelson, thank you so much for the discussion about the Thrive Project. Uh, I, I think it's so important for all of us to be thinking about this. I think it's important for our patients. Before we end the podcast, do you have any other comments that you would like to share with our listeners? No, I just wanted to say thank you so very much for the opportunity to speak about this topic on behalf of the Thrive Initiative. It's an absolute honor. Thank you. Sure. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you to our audience. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org backslash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast team, I am Dr. Ludwig Lin. Mark your calendar to attend the 45th Critical Care Congress to be held February 20th through 24th, 2016 in Orlando, Florida, USA.
This five-day event will bring together more than 6,000 members of the critical care community from around the world and will offer opportunities to share creative and stimulating ideas, make valuable connections, and obtain inspired perspectives. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Ludwig Lynn, M.D. is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Alta Bates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University, where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.